0: This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is a composer who covers a pretty complete spectrum of genres. Christopher Gordon has written for the Sydney Symphony and the Australian Chamber Orchestra, for the 2006 Commonwealth Games and the Centenary Federation, and has penned scores for films such as Master and Commander, Mao's Last Dancer and Ladies in Black. And that's before we get to his music for ballet and computer games. I told you he covers pretty much everything. He's now written a new album of chamber works titled simply Chamber Music – and I'm delighted that he's with me now, Christopher Gordon. Thank you for being in conversation with me today.
0: Thank you for having me, Simon. Now, that's quite a list of credits I rattled off there. What led you to this album of chamber music? Well, I have been writing chamber music over the years, um, well, for many, many years. And um, it sort of builds up. And, but really, it comes down to there's a particular piece on the album, the major work on the album, which is uh, my chamber symphony called Freefall. And uh, that had been commissioned by the Amiga Ensemble. Um, a few years ago, and um, I've always felt very pleased with it and wanted to record it. So um, in 2016, I um, set up to record that and, and some satellite pieces for the same size ensemble and a couple of other things. The trouble is it costs a lot of money and uh, the finances ran out. So it sort of got put on hold for a while. Like any Uh, good building project. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And, um, you know, I wasn't able to um, pull it all together until uh, 2021. And by that stage, I'd I'd written other pieces and I'd looked back over my past and and things. And originally I was just going to release it as an EP, uh, Mm -hmm. The Chamber Symphony and some other things. But when I sort of looked at the whole lot together as one package – I thought it was really interesting, and they actually um, played off each other really, Mm. really nicely. They contrasted really nicely.
1: I mean, do you program it uh, almost this the album almost as if you might program a a concert performance? Yeah, does does one thing move to the next piece?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's two CDs. If you're buying it on CD, of course you can get it downloaded and so on as well. But on on CD, they both start with different versions of the same piece, Mm. and they both end with pieces that fade off into nothing. And in between, there's, there's variations. Is the process different to when you're creating the new works for uh, an album release such as
1: this versus when you're creating them for an orchestra to perform?
0: Well, of course, with with this, I guess I'm, I'm my own master in, in mm-hmm. all senses. Um, and um, I have to find the light myself to, uh, to be able to follow Whereas when working with, uh, well, when commissioned by um, an organisation, of course you have the players in mind. They have certain restrictions in terms of length and number of instruments and so on. Yes, there's a brief basically. Yes, there's a brief. Yeah, Um, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of um, you know changing or so on. These things, even in the concert world, usually happen quite fast. Mm. Um, There's a date where you deliver, and then there's a date where it's performed, and it, it it moves quite fast. I know that you mentioned that you know, things had to be put off because you, know, you ran
1: out of money and so on, but did you ever have to give yourself a self-imposed deadline to um, make sure it
0: got finished? <laughs> not in terms of the recording. That wasn't so hard. In terms of composing, Well, yes. that's what I was more thinking yes, of. Yes, you know, that's right. There's always tomorrow. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. It's, um, it's, uh, it's very important, I think, for any composer to, if they're not rehearsing or some such thing, to compose every single day. Um, even if you throw it all away, mm-hmm. I know. Um, I know that John Williams, for example, um, even though he's now ninety years old, um, composes six and a half days a week, and is scared, six and a half days, and apparently is scared not to, in case he loses it. In case he loses it, so even if he chucks six and a quarter of the days away. Apparently, this is what I hear. So, um, and I've heard this from other composers too. You know, it, it's just it's really important to just compose and compose and compose, even though you throw a lot away, uh, because it's very easy to dither. And I've got to say, a trap with um, with putting out an album like this is you get caught up in the marketing and, ah. uh, and the promotion and so on and, and getting the thing made that um, suddenly you, you don't find the time to compose. Mm. So I'm looking forward to getting back to that very shortly. Well, I think we have to have a track from this new album. Christopher, what have you got for us first? Um, first up is a track called Cabin Fever. Um, I wrote that in uh, – when was it? In April 2020. Um, which, um, of course, in Australia, that was the month where um, we'd, we'd been uh, facing COVID for a whole month. Yes, and, uh, and we you were already were, getting ca- cabin fever. that's and and not were a already good getting ca- cabin fever. <laughs> so I wrote this uh, wild wild piece for a solo piano. It's extraordinarily difficult, I'm afraid to say, but it is playable, and um, I'm delighted that uh, Benjamin Cop just uh, took it on hand and he just knocked it off. It was fantastic to watch him play it.
1: A piece there, Benjamin Kopp performing Cabin Fever, and that piece was written by my guest in the studio today, the composer Christopher Gordon, and that track features on his new album entitled Simply and Elegantly. Chamber music. And uh, yes, so Christopher, you're getting cabin fever only a month into the COVID lockdowns in April of 2020. So I, I, I hope you're not getting cabin fever now. <laughs> has it been
0: a productive couple of years? Well, it has been a strangely productive couple of years in an odd sort of way. Um, you know, on the one hand, jobs went out the window, they got cancelled all over the place. But I was quite fortunate in that there are other, other avenues that opened up that kept me quite busy, mm. and then, of course, recording chamber music itself. It's, uh, it's not just the days of recording, it's the preparation and the, the editing and the mixing and, and so on. So I've had quite a busy uh, 12 months or so. So tell me about how this composing gig started. Were you always wanting to compose, even from when you were very little? Um, Was there a bug that you caught? Yeah, pretty, pretty little. Um, I'd been uh, in the Australian Boys' Choir from about the age of uh, 10 or thereabouts, and loved loved music, and I was introduced to a lot of a uh, lot of uh, fantastic music. Um, I still, you know, love uh, Palestrina and Victoria and uh, Benjamin Britten was my first favourite composer. And uh, by the time I was about thirteen, I decided this is it. I'm going to be a composer, and um, I've sort of stayed on that course ever since. I've never never deviated from from. Were you playing desire. an instrument? I played the piano and very very badly. Um, and that's not a mo- not modesty. I honestly play very very badly <laughs> these days. I like to say that I play the pencil and the mouse. Oh, that's nice. Yes. Um, so uh, with that decision, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, there were difficulties in my childhood. We don't have to go into great detail, but as such, that um, I wagged school all the time and didn't study, and I had uh, I only was interested in music at all. So I- you
1: just didn't find the traditional
0: curriculum. Interesting. It, it was more than that. I, I couldn't uh, attend school, basically. I just I just wagged it or, mm. or um, often I, I hung out in the music room when I should have been in geography or history <laughs> or whatever it was um, and avoided class. So I left school early. I didn't finish school. I think uh, I didn't finish year 11. And um, I sort of was rather, rather lost and um, by um, not to get into the morbid but to get quickly through it, um, I turned to alcohol. Right. Uh, quite young and for a good 10 years, I was pretty much uh, drinking myself into blackout every day. And um, obviously not um, not being educated. Not, I, d- I never went to university or anything like that. Um, I did play in the earlier part of that. I played in a number of bands because I discovered prog rock at the time, which I still absolutely love. Bands like Yes and Genesis and King Crimson and so on. Um, and it's had a, a profound influence on my music. Um, but eventually that uh, disappeared. And by the time um, I was fortunate enough to be able to sober up, I was 30 years old. Um, so what triggered the sobering up? Um, someone took me to an Alcoholics Anonymous mm. meeting. There was and an intervention, basically. An intervention um, by someone I'd only just met. And I got it. Thank goodness. I got it straight away. And mm-hmm. I've never drunk since. That was in 1986. And um, here I was at the age of 30. I was in utter shock. I I don't know how to describe it, but everybody's experienced shock. My shock lasted over 10 years from then on. Just uh, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was. I I didn't know how to place myself in the world. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to place myself musically because I like so many different types of music. It was, it's only many, many years later that I realised that essentially I've got bad taste. Ah. Um, at least that's what the world's been telling me. I think that's what my problem is. <laughs> <laughs> because I always seem to like music that people disapprove of. Back in the day, oh, was dear. prog rock, or, or worst of all for an Australian composer, I love the music of Vaughan Williams, um, which is OK <laughs> these days, but back then <laughs> it wasn't, and, and I could go on and on. But, um, look, um, I moved to Sydney and, and uh, married my wife up here, and um, I gradually started pulling things together through my 30s. And at first, she, she used to make small issue, um, social issue um, short films, and I used to score those, and she was pretty much the only person who'd employ me. But at the same time, I started approaching other composers in the film world uh, because I realised that a lot of them didn't know how to orchestrate and I believed that I could. I didn't have any proof that I could. Because you'd never
1: done any kind of, even later, secondary education. No no tertiary. What about any kind of um, taft kind of thing? Nothing. Nothing like
0: that? Nothing at all. The only thing I did do was I read the books. Mm-hmm. Um, Schoenberg's um, Harmony Lira was very influential on me. Um, I was obsessed with reading orchestral scores. And so probably, I mean, the whole repertoire, of course, but a very significant one was Wagner's Siegfried which I just um, ate for breakfast, basically, mm-hmm. for years and years, along with much other music. So um, I started to get work orchestrating for other composers. So we did things like uh, the Channel 9 logo or, um, oh, wow, or, or a right. McDonald's ad. Can you believe they actually had orchestras back then? This is in the, in the 90s we're talking about now. And um, gradually I built up with Rob and my wife some scores for her. And, and one day I heard, I don't know where I got the gall from, but one day I heard about this great big production that was happening in Melbourne, starring Patrick Stewart and Gregory Peck on Moby Dick. And um, I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. That's right up my alley doing that sort of thing. So I wrote off, and um, they actually asked for a demo, which was surprising. And I did a very quick demo. And sent that down and short stories, I got the job.
1: At demos and hastily record, hastily, hastily recorded, recorded and composed music that might be suitable for maybe Dick.
0: That's right, yeah, which I did just from reading about half the book because it was, we're talking about it about three or four days period, mm. three or four day period here. And, now um, that's a deadline. Uh, that's a deadline indeed <laughs> and very motivating. And um, much to my surprise, I got the job. So suddenly I was writing an hour and a half of music for a great big production uh, for what 80, 85-piece orchestra. And what year is this? Uh, 97 now. Right. So I'm 41 at this stage. And finally I feel like I, I, you know, I'd stepped onto the stage. Um, It was an extraordinary experience to write that. You know, I've I've cut corners here and there. In the previous couple of years, the odd smaller thing had had happened here and there. But but essentially that's the story. And uh, it's still... uh, a favourite of mine, Moby Dick. It was, um, it's a style of music that uh, you, you wouldn't really be allowed to write for film these days. Why it's, you say that? Well, it was sort of an older style. It was the, the big um, – it's what people think of when they think of film music. Mm. And the truth is that's not written anymore. It hasn't been written for a long time, that style of music. Um, you know the big, broad epic thing. When, well, when we... you mentioned John Williams before mm. when you were talking about composing that kind of thing—lots of strings, lots of soaring music. That's, that's right. Sort of the yeah. big, the big epic sound. And I really wanted to do it, and I saw it as a chance. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a whaling story of uh, Nantucket and into the ocean, and um, I immediately thought of composers, the British composers like Bax and um, mm. and, um, and Vaughan Williams and, and so on, who wrote those um, epic scores for the you know, the earlier period in the British films and so on. Um, So that's sort of the language that I used for it and had a lot of fun.
1: I want to go back to the orchestration. We're going to hear something from Maybe Dick in a moment, but I just want to go back to the orchestration thing because that is quite something that you were self-taught, not just in composition. I mean, a lot of people can kind of put a tune in their head or have a tune in their head, whereas orchestration, especially when you're talking about multiple instruments, that is quite a talent, and you effectively picked that up from reading a bit of Schoenberg and and I guess from an innate
0: uh, instinct. Yeah, osmosis, I guess. Osmosis. Yeah, just yeah. reading scores. I was, I think, I was always attracted to orchestration, even um, even when I was at school. Um, like it was that early, very early on. The colours. Um, I love colour um, in music, and I, uh, I don't really know what to say. It's it's just it's always there at the forefront um, when I, mm-hmm. when I'm writing, thinking about the the, the colours and the, the the tonalities and um, shaping a piece with orchestration. You know so that, uh, for example, all the loud bits aren't the same sort of density. You know, Mm. there's differences throughout it and so on, yeah.
1: Interesting. Well, I think we do have to have now a little segment from Moby Dick. What have you got for it, Christopher?
0: Well, this is, I guess, it's the main theme. It opens the whole um, mini-series. It's called Call Me Ishmael.
1: Call Me Ishmael, a little segment from Moby Dick. Music by Christopher Gordon, my guest in conversation today. And Christopher Gordon was also conducting the studio orchestra, we heard. Christopher, studio orchestra conducted
0: by you. What's it like conducting your own music? Well, at that point, it was pretty terrifying, I've got to say. (laughs) I mean, you're standing in front of, um, you know, absolutely top, top musicians in town and um, telling them how to play the music. It's, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I guess, I guess, you know, you remember I'm the only person there who actually knows what's, how it's meant to sound mm-hmm. and I just have to convey that to them. Do they get sent the music in advance or do they just arrive and here it is? Uh, nine times out of ten, even more than that, um, they just see it when they arrive. So the sight reading. They sight read. That's the normal situation in film. Um, occasionally if there's a particularly, you know, intricate solo or something, a violin solo, the player might get it in advance and harpists like to get it in advance so they can check that the pedalling is all correct because so often it's not um, but generally speaking no it's all sight reading um, you turn up at the session and um, you know after three hours you've recorded roughly 15 minutes of music conducting you know uh, it's something I learned on the job over the years uh, and I was osmosis a, again <laughs> osmosis and I was a slow learner in terms of uh, physical technique but, um, the thing that always saved me was a, was uh the musician you still need the musicianship of knowing the piece mm. and knowing t- how to convey to the musicians you know how how, th- how it needs to be whether the notes are short, whether the phrasing is is in mm. this way or in that way, and so on although i'm self educated i'd say i'm well educated mm. um, in music was there a gap you noticed no, i don't think i mean I think it's like anything you don't always know what you don't know mm. until later on. And then you think back and you realise, oh, in actual fact, you know, <laughs> I could have done it this way or I could have said it that way or, or whatever.
1: So what's the process of recording versus, say, recording your Chamber Music album? Um, I mean, you mentioned the fact that, you know, the musicians are essentially sight reading. Is it much more post-produced and assembled than, say, your album of Chamber Music?
0: Yes. In, in my particular case, perhaps not quite so much, but... Um, Most other composers in film these days record everything in sections. I don't mean beginning to end sections. I mean um, layers. So the strings are recorded by themselves. Mm. The woodwinds are recorded by themselves. The brass by themselves. The percussion by themselves. The choir by themselves. And then they're all added in, Mm. in the mix later on. There's a couple of reasons for this. One is that it can save time. You don't have, for example, woodwinds sitting around for half an hour doing nothing because it's a big string section, for example. The other reason is that I think the real art these days is not orchestration in this area, it's production. Mm. And to be able to have all the elements separately on their own channel and to be able to balance them and mix them against each other. Whereas if you've got everybody in the whole room, you're going to have the trumpets bleeding into the viola microphone, for example. Mm. And so um, a lot of composers like to have that that control over the mix. But, I mean, that's how pop and rock music is,
1: is uh, exactly. put together. And it's funny because classical albums traditionally are not put together that way. They are put together by the orchestra, all or playing together, and... You know, judiciously placed microphones. Hopefully, not as you say, the trumpets getting into the viola section, etc. Cetera, et cetera. That's right.
0: Almost all of my film scores, including and my chamber music, I've recorded with everybody there. Mm. Um, there's been the odd place where I haven't, for example, um, big cymbal crashes and things like that. Ah. I might overdub those. Mm. Also, I can, I can think back of... Uh, that saves at-
1: them counting like about 97 bars of silence. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs>
0: um, although these days you lead up, you just um, you know, just say, OK, we're going from bar 67 and you're going to play at 69. You know. <laughs> but uh, occasionally or usually you'd overdub the choir just because it's more practical. One perhaps difference where I did break things up more was on Mao's Last Dancer. The majority of that score was uh, a string section but there are a lot of ethnic instruments. I wasn't quite sure how they would go in a room with the orchestra, with the clock ticking over. Mm. Um, So I recorded each one of those five Chinese instruments separately um, and then the harp separately. Um, So that was a rare occasion of doing it that way. But most of my music, um, and the chamber music too, um, I tend to record with everybody in the room because I like to hear how everything is and Mm. then try and balance it. Um, With the clock ticking over... You have to be able to hear things quite quickly. When you um,
1: say clock, you're talking about the like the click track. Uh, no, no,
0: I mean uh, that you've only got three hours to get oh, 15 minutes clock, done. Right. And you have to get 15 minutes done, or it's not done. You know, and yeah. you're fired. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no, maybe Dick too. Uh, no, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. So, um, consequently, um, you know, you learn, you learn to you learn to uh, work very very fast doing mm. that sort of recording. Yeah, you've
1: done. Films, dare I suggest, with a larger budget, and dare I suggest, with a smaller budget, are they actually the same to write
0: for? Uh, I would say yes, ultimately, because you're trying to, you're just trying to get the tone right for the movie. You know, trying to find the right colours, the right tempos, the right lyricism, and so on. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a small film like uh, the beautiful one I did recently called June Again or a, you know, a really big film like, uh, say, the vampire movie Daybreakers or something. you know mm-hmm. It's really the same process.
1: Well, we have to have another piece of music now, and uh, this one is uh, a more recent film than Moby Dick. It's Ladies in Black. Tell us about what we're going to hear now.
0: Yeah, well, I mentioned Mao's Last Answer a moment ago. That was uh, directed by Australian director Bruce Beresford, and I've actually done three projects for him. In fact, after Moby Dick, the next job I did was for him. It was an IMAX film called Sydney, A Story of a City, mm-hmm which had quite a bit of music. And then we did Male's Last Dancer in 2007, I think it was, or eight two 2008, and then Ladies in Black in 2018. You know, it's always – it's wonderful working with Bruce because um, he loves music. Uh, of course, he directs opera as well. And um, it's it's just – there's just a really nice shorthand mm. that happens, even though he's not a musician, just being able to speak the same language. And his his films allow music very much. I mean, of course, Male's Last Dancer has a lot of music – Ladies in black is a very lyrical film and allowed for quite a bit of music really nice music too so um, we're going to hear uh, Magda's theme which uh, features the violin of Fiona Ziegler um, who I often work with and uh, and then that moves into the theme for the store itself goods theme.
1: Magda's theme and Good's theme from the film Ladies in Black Music by my guest in conversation today, the composer Christopher Gordon. And he was also, of course, conducting, as you do when you're a film composer, the orchestra there, the Magic Fire Orchestra, and the violins we heard was Fiona Ziegler. Quite a flavour in that piece, Christopher, with that violin. Where did that inspiration come from?
0: The character Magda has a lot of flair. She's uh, probably the most uh, cultured person in the, in the film she comes from Slovenia, if I have that correctly, because it's a it's a, it's a film of um, of migration uh, set in 1959 in in a store in a David Jones type store, and uh, she is very much the cultured person um, in the film, and. Um, it just, uh, I don't know, the fla- the, her flair, it just sort of cried out for a, a good uh, cadenza style um, yeah. you know, solo violin. It certainly does suggest that uh,
1: Eastern European uh, background, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And it's a, it's a fantastic film, lovely music in the film. I want to understand more about the, the process of composing for film. Um, and I suspect there's a lot of answers here. How much composition do you do, are you required to do, without seeing a single frame of the film? If you're talking about actually composing for the film, I'd say. Well, I suppose maybe the Moby Dick audition was. Um, yeah. Uh, well, there, there, so, sometimes
0: the, you you do a demo off the script or something to try and get the job. Right. Um, I don't do to that. see if you're in the right flavor department, kind of. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't happen very often for me. Probably only two or three times. Normally, I seem to get the jobs already, uh, on the basis of music I've already yeah. composed. Reputation. Um, so, um, in terms of actually composing for the movie, once I've got the job, mm-hmm. I'd say that never happens. Right. Um, Usually, ideally, the film is edited completely, 100%. 100%? And, and locked off. Wow. That's the ideal world. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. Um, often they're still cutting the film while you're composing. Even after you've recorded, they're still cutting the film and then you have to cut the music to try and fit the film and so on. But uh, the one exception was Mao's Last Dancer because that required me to compose music that was then choreographed to, which they then filmed. Right. So it was the other, other way around. And then, of course, 10 months later, I did the score, the rest of the score. Yes, in the traditional way. Yes,
1: it's almost like you, yes, you're doing the music that, that is literally in the film versus the music which is the incidental. That's right. Music, yes. right. Yes. So tell me about that process. I mean, you've obviously got literally three seconds or twelve second music cue or whatever. You've got a very, very prescribed period of time, and how, how do you get through that in terms of you know pacing and
0: tempo and making sure it all all works? Mm. Well, I do a lot of analysis um, in the first place when I first get it. Rather cerebral analysis, I have to say. So much so, I don't tell anybody, including the director. Um, it just gets me into into the movie and gets it into my blood. Once I've got to that stage, there's a fair amount of intuition involved. Mm-hmm. It just uh, something just it feels right to do it, so you do it, and then you check it, um, and and adjust accordingly. Usually, I write out a very simple shape to a particular cue. It might be two minutes long or something, and just a, a general shape, and you make it fit to the movie. You do it all on a computer these days. There's all sorts of timings and stuff um, that make it very, very simple to make sure that um, if, you're, if you're staying in 3-4 for the whole time, then you need to do it at this, t- this tempo or you'll be too long or you won't actually hit that door slam with that big crash, you know, all those sorts of things. You need to make sure that they're there. A little nip and tuck. Every now and then you have to throw in a 5-8 bar just to make it, uh, ah. make it fit and then you have to try and make that sound musical. Yeah. Like it's a natural thing, you know. Or a um, sudden retardando or something to get into. That's right. All those sorts of. Once that shape is there, yeah. then it's a matter of just um, basically scoring it up mm. into the full, full piece. And I
1: imagine that's where you, you end up with the, the challenge slash issue of, of when the director is making those last minute trims and edits and suddenly you've literally got, you know, a third of a second because he's tightened up, he or she has tightened up the um, this shot change there. And so you've now suddenly got to change the
0: music. Yeah, absolutely. Or two scenes are swapped around. And so you've written a transition to get from here to there and suddenly with the scene swapped around, that transition, doesn't transition work. No, no longer works. So uh, that's the
1: job. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we, we heard Magda's theme there. Do you like writing and introducing themes for
0: characters and, and plays? Yeah, this is where my um, early influence of Wagner perhaps comes in. Ah. I, I, love, I, love, I love getting into the psychology um, and, and the emotional journey of characters, regardless of the film. It doesn't matter whether it's a vampire film or a or um, you know a rom-com or, or what. Um, in the case of Ladies in Black, perhaps it's a little bit different In that's very clearly about, I haven't counted them, but yes. four different women um, and, and each of their stories which inter- intertwine in different ways to a lesser and, and a greater extent. And so it made sense in that film to have a particular theme for a character and indeed one of the characters, uh, Faye, her theme doesn't even appear until well into the movie a long way like almost two-thirds of the way which is something I would never normally do but it just didn't work to otherwise do it whereas um, something like Moby Dick is highly motivic in the in the Wagner sense Um, it's quite integrated Um, and then other pieces you just have themes that you weave in and out accordingly.
1: Is there a film which you were doing when you thought I just don't get this I, I, I can't get this one?
0: There's sometimes a scene in a movie rather than a film. The director and I might have a different view of how it should be and ultimately you've got to do what the director wants. That's that's It's, uh, people it's, talk, their, vision. it's mm. their vision. It's their vision. Mm. It's their vision. And um, But it, it doesn't stop me from trying to convince them of my view in the first place. <laughs> of course, that's what you're there for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and so often you might do two or three versions of something yeah. to try and get it. Occasionally, I don't want to mention names here, no, but, of course. but there was a film where... Uh, I think that the, I think the director didn't know how it was meant to finish, even though it was shot. Didn't know the emotional content. Didn't know what the audience was meant to be left with, ah. and consequently, I did something like uh, I can't remember fifteen or eighteen versions of of, of a thing. Um, by which stage, of course, I'd totally lost any connection because I'd just rewrite, rewrite over and over. Mm. So that was perhaps a, one of the least happy experiences. Whereas elsewhere, there, there, there might be a scene where I see it as um, perhaps a little bit tragic from this person's point of view and the director sees it as actually comic from that person's point mm. of view and um, trying, to, trying to understand how the, how the uh, director wants it can be a bit of a, a brain twister at times because I'm so convinced that it should be the other way, you know. Mm. But these are, I've got to say, these are uh, not common. They, they just happen here and there. Do you write at the keyboard? You said you played piano uh, earlier in life. Is that how you write? <laughs> I, do, I do all my sketching on the piano and just, you know, quickly write, notate all the sketches and then I move to the computer. Most composers in film, and I think in others like John Adams, for example, like to compose in a digital audio workstation, something like uh, Logic or, or Digital Performer, and then go and move to notation at a later stage. But I actually like to go straight to notation. So I have a, a nice big screen where I can see two 3 size pages and I just compose notation straight in into the full score.
1: Nice. Now, you were talking about Mao's Last Dancer before and the fact that we had some, uh, well, some dance music that had to be composed for the film and then before coming to do the incidental music later. That actually led you to write for a different genre again, I believe, and that was a ballet music.
0: Yes, that's right. So uh, when was Mao's Last Dancer? 2008, and then... um, so six years later, uh, Graham Murphy had been the choreographer on that film and six years later Graham rang me up and said um, he was going to be choreographing um, a version of Giselle in Korea, in Seoul um, and would I be interested in um, sort of rewriting it for, with Korean instruments as well as an orchestra. And I looked at that and I couldn't see how to do it um, in that way so I suggested writing a totally original piece. And blow me down, everybody accepted that fact. So um, the original Giselle is uh, uh, its one of the most popular ballets that there is. Um, I can't say I'm greatly in love with the music, um, apart from some lovely viola solos in the uh, second half. Not, um, not Wagnerian enough for you. It's not that. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I love delicate, beautiful yeah. music. It's just, to me, it was a story of... Um, of ghosts and fear, and, and, and so on. So um, it's quite a wild uh, version, which is why I called it Giselle and the Wraith Queen. And um, there's a lot of beauty in it. In fact, we might even listen to a track with the first part of it from it. But um, there's also a large battery of percussion, um, which, uh, like about six players playing drums, um, it's really quite wild. There's a lot of fun to do. And then from that, Graham then asked me to score a brand new ballet for the Australian Ballet called The Happy Prince. Mm. Um, and that was a lot of fun to do, um, Kim Carpenter's uh, designs. I had to, had to compose that in an extremely short amount of time, I think two and a half months, a whole 90-minute um, ballet. Mm. Um, and then just as I was about to go into rehearsal, Graham became ill and the whole thing was put off. So a year later... Um, it finally is going to go on. It goes on in Brisbane in be- February uh, 2020. And guess what happened? COVID came I can't along. can't possibly guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the Melbourne season was cancelled and then the Sydney season was cancelled and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, well, it'll the, come back. I mean, that, it's all ready to go, surely. That was so much fun. And yes. I've since done um, so, so, um, another dance work called The Hedonists as well for, um, for, for Graham, which is uh, based on The Seven Deadly Sins. Well, it certainly doesn't sound like it was a one-off experience then, the ballet music. <laughs> no, it's, it's a lot of fun. I really, really enjoy it. I, li- I like the, uh, the idea of telling story of yeah. having narrative. With music.
1: Did you need to have much knowledge of dance in order to do this? Or did you study it at all before you... I, 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 sort,
0: of, I sort of decided, and I'm, I'll probably check this with Graham, but I sort of decided no, because you go to the ballet and, and almost anything you can think of musically is dance to, mm-hmm. you know, um, all sorts of styles and things. So I thought I'll, I'll just write music and let Graham work it out. <laughs> well, uh, let's have a track now. So which, which pas de deux are we doing from Giselle? This is the very first part de deux. It's never actually been recorded. What we're listening to is I do a uh, a demo with uh, synthesizers which uh, the dancers can then rehearse to and this that's what this is. However, when it came to the part de', deux, it features a violin and cello's duet on top, and the synthesizers just did not do it justice. So um at a very late stage, I was already in Seoul, and I was sitting in my hotel room listening to them recording it here in Sydney those two over the top of the orchestra of samples. Um, and we have Andrew Haveron on violin and Catherine Hugel on cello. Mm-hmm.
1: par de from Giselle and the Wraith Queen by my guest in the studio today Christopher Gordon, Andrew Haveron, the violinist Catherine Hugel, the cellist, playing with well, I suppose playing with Christopher Gordon many times over as he was the one supplying the uh, the, uh, the synthesizer, well, synthesized music background. Is that the, the correct way that, of putting it, that'll Christopher? That'll do. That'll do. Yes. That'll do. You're, you're everybody else. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you Actually, see, you can play every instrument. <laughs> I,
0: I, should, I should credit um, my assistant, David Barber, who um, helped me out enormously with ah. those sounds. Ah, excellent, excellent,
1: excellent. Now, there is another genre of music that we haven't covered yet, and that's for computer games. Now, that's quite a thing. Quite an industry now, isn't it? It
0: is indeed. Now, I've never composed for computer games. Right. But what I do do is, um, is I conduct quite a lot for both film and for, for uh, computer games. Particularly, um, some listeners might know the computer games um, World of Warcraft right. and the recent um, release called Shadowlands and the various expansions. That was all recorded here in Sydney, which, which I conducted. Yes, I, I, don't, I don't play either
1: of them, but they're top tier Computer games, world world famous. Absolutely, and they're recorded here. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's right. And there, there's those. I, I think we've done uh, at some stage uh, a Japanese game and a Korean game, but I'm not sure what they what they were. And uh, sometimes these things are in secret, so the music in front of you has no titles on it, oh. apart from number one or number two. You know, so you don't really know quite uh, what, what what the job is sometimes. But also with films, um, a lot of films uh, we've done uh, things like. Uh, Mortal Kombat, La Brea, which is the TV series that's on now. And what, what's, what might be of interest to listeners is the way that it's done because mm. usually the composer who's in charge, the composer is not in Sydney. The composer will be in their studio um, in maybe Los Angeles or in London or uh, in one case deep in the French um, countryside. How nice for them. How nice for them, yeah. <laughs> um, and they're listening in um, and they can hear what we're doing. Over, over a special line, um, and um, they can also see the room through a uh, Skype or some such yeah. thing, and um, and I can hear them in my headphones. So it's really just like they're in the control room over there, and you mm-hmm. can't see them. Is that a COVID thing? It was that happening even before. It, um, before it's been that? happening for quite a few years before. So they but, don't
1: bother flying out. Didn't bother flying out. For that's
0: like right, but. Covid increased that work for a while. The studio here in Sydney uh, called Trackdown was pretty much the only dedicated orchestral sort of film studio Mm. in the world in the world that 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 could operate because there was a way around it by still keeping the whatever the two metre whatever it was distance and number of people in the room and you know you just had the strings alone and then woodwind alone and all those sort doing all the rules uh, we were able to operate Mm. and so um, that was when you asked me earlier how COVID had treated me. Although I lost some jobs, um, a major ballet was put off, for example, composing. Yeah. On the other hand, i got a lot of conducting in the studio, wow. which um, helped to finance this uh, chamber music album. So
1: why has Australia seemed to corner the market in um, this kind of
0: recording? I wouldn't say we've cornered it. There's competition. There's competition. Well, I'm sure,
1: but nevertheless, if we're doing well, world-leading... Um Games and uh, And I
0: think that's it. I think it's sort of a, a bit of a secret still, but it's slowly becoming known that the the standard of uh, musicianship in Australia is extraordinarily high mm. um, in orchestral, you know, musicianship. And um, I, I, it would be no surprise to, to to the listeners to know that there are many, many Australians in world, the various world orchestras, you know, often in principal positions. Some of them come back and play in the sessions, and um, and then, of course, um, you know, our local musicians are amazing. The strings in particular are, are, are very, very liked, but uh, across the board with uh, woodwind and the percussion and the brass, uh, getting really, really good results, so people keep coming back. Yeah. Given that you've got the composer at the other end of your headphones,
1: um Having had to set up meetings with people in, in Britain and America, I know that they don't uh, tend to, well, they tend to ignore the, the time difference. Are you recording at
0: three o'clock in the morning for their convenience, or are they actually having to stay up all night? No, the one concession we make is we start at nine o'clock instead of at 10 o'clock in the oh. morning, which is fine for the United States, um, although sometimes they, we, you know, at the end of a long day it'll be 1, 1 a.m. for them when we finish. Mm. Um, it's far worse for when they're in England. Yeah, I was about to say. Uh, I do remember one job where they were up right through the whole night by the time we'd no, finished.
1: You didn't do like an evening session our time or something and they got up at 6am no. or something? No, I mean
0: sometimes we do <laughs> do evening sessions yeah. but um, it's, it's all a matter of availability and what works, yeah.
1: And how do you find working with um, a voice at the other end of, of your headphones, I mean regardless of whether they're in the booth or, or, or at the other side of the world, there's, there's still that direction which is being given to you as the conductor.
0: What's that like? Yeah, well, I mean it, obviously it varies. Yeah, I have to remember all the time that it's what they want, mm. that, that, that what this is about. Um, it's about giving them the, uh, a final result that they're very, very happy with. Some composers are very particular. The ones I find uh, best of all is, is when um, uh, the experienced ones who know when not to talk and let us just get on with the job and then know exactly when to come in and put it in a certain direction. Um and that's that's a lot of joy when that happens. You know uh, we sort of said it before, but everybody including myself, a sight reading, I've never seen the music before myself either. You
1: turn up on that day
0: and often that's I, it. often I'll get it the day before and I just have a quick look through. I mean, you know mm. uh, it's you, you can't study it in in the normal sense in the way you would with concert music. And so you turn up and um, you know most of the, the first run through, I have no idea what's on the next page as we as we're recording. The, the first run through.
1: But, again, you're doing that thing where you're doing it in layers, I imagine.
0: Though. We're doing yeah. it in layers, that's right. And, of course, you, you get more than one go at doing yeah. it. But it does mean that um, the skill is different. To, in, in concert music, of course, the conductor is, uh, is, is, is leading and, and allowing the orchestra to breathe and it's a, it's a collaborative thing, whereas in uh, film and, and games you're using a click track, which means everybody has to be religious to the click, um, like a metronome. However, there's still a lot of room for interpretation, and and so on. So that's where my job comes in: is to mm-hmm. um, look at phrasing, to look at uh, where breathing can happen, to get better ensemble, mm-hmm. um, to discover wrong notes, to um, sometimes reorchestrate a bit on the fly, just to make it sound better, um, more what the con- what the composer wants. So um, it's very much on the fly is very much what it's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine.
1: Now, I'd be curious about another aspect of your life that we haven't talked about at all which has got nothing to do with film composing, but quite recently you just finished a term in local government as a local councillor now I want to know what what persuaded you to stand for office
0: <laughs> yes well that's very very true i was um I was a councillor at uh, at the city of ride um, for four and a quarter years and deputy mayor for one of those years deputy first, mayor first of those years and it was uh it was great um i i've, I've I've spent my life interested in following politics and getting very, very frustrated and throwing shoes at the television, and as, as so many of us do. And, and in in two thousand and sixteen, the Arts Party actually sent out an email wanting to know if anybody wanted to stand um, in the federal election. And um, at that stage, it was just after the, some massive cuts had happened to the Australia Council and so on, which uh, which you might remember. And the Arts were doing very, very badly at that point. So. I thought, oh well, I'll you know, I'm not gonna win, but I'll I'll just yeah. get in an, and be a voice. But while I was there, um, I uh discovered I enjoyed it. So, um I joined the greens and um and within a few months I was elected onto council. Within a few months. <laughs> that's a that's a swift trajectory. It was a very, very <laughs> I think uh, to be accurate it was probably about 10 months or something. But, well, nevertheless yeah. Yeah. some uh, people work there for a d- d- decade to do that. <laughs> that's right. And um it was it was wonderful. I mean it was great. Uh, composing is a very very solitary job and the the conducting doesn't hap- happen that much. Most of the time I'm by myself in a room. And um you know Perhaps related to my the earlier part of my story, uh, depression's not that far away when you're in that situation. You know, um, it can be very hard to at least keep motivated. I'm not a gregarious person, and uh, so getting on council suddenly I was out and meeting people in in the world and and, and in society, and um, and helping them in various areas. And uh, it was very very rewarding. I really I really really enjoyed it. I, I think um, you know I've done it now. I don't yeah. need to keep doing it. Four and a quarter years was a good was a good amount. Mm, Because it is quite demanding, isn't it? It is very... If you want to do it properly. If you want to do it properly, Mm. um, it is demanding. Basically, any hole you have in your life, it'll fill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we don't want to have too many holes. Christopher Gordon, before I finish up, we've got one more selection
1: from your uh, new album of chamber music. It is um, Out of the Mud. It
0: sounds like the perfect antidote to cabin fever. Can you tell us about this uh, this piece? Well, uh, this is uh, perhaps suitable in that... um, it's had three iterations in its life. Um, it was originally written for, for uh, Double Children's Choir and Strings and Piano, uh, commissioned by the Sydney Children's Choir for their 15th anniversary in 2004. And um, about three years later, when I was doing my Chamber Symphony Freefall, I decided to arrange it for the same instrumentation, and uh, along with some other works. And so that's what is on the album and that's what we're going to hear now. But many years later, 2018, when I came to do the score for The Happy Prince and, as I said, I didn't have much time, I looked at a couple of existing pieces and realised that they would actually fit very, very nicely if we re- re-orchestrated. And it became, this piece became the basis for the, for the character Swallow and his music Um, in in The Happy Prince. Well, Christopher Gordon, it's been absolutely
1: fascinating to talk to you this afternoon. I think we've gone for a while, but we are out of time. Thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. It's my great pleasure, Simon. Thank you. Composer Christopher Gordon, he has a new album with the elegant and simple title of Chamber Music, which is out now on the Magic Fire label. You can explore the full oeuvre of his work by visiting ChristopherGordon.net. If you're hearing this programme on or shortly after broadcast, this album is our CD of the week, You can hear more tracks and go into the draw to win a copy of it by listening to our breakfast program this week, weekdays between 6 and 9. For more info, go to 2 mbsfinemusicsydneycom That's all for this edition of In Conversation. Thanks for joining me. Subscribe to the show using your preferred podcast app. Just search for 2MBS In Conversation so that each episode downloads to your device, which makes it easier to listen to whilst on the go. I'm Simon Moore and this is 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. We'll go out with Out of the Mud from the new album Chamber Music by Christopher Gordon. Bye for now.